Well, he's standing next to Radha. She is the Swayam Shakti, the principal Shakti. All Shakti manifestations of her, from Sita and uh, Lakshmi and queens of Dwarka, Kubja and Mutura, to Parvati, all manifestations of Durga and so forth. It's all manifestations of Radha for different purposes, for different worshippers of different kinds and so forth. So Swaha is the Shakti, the Maya, and that which makes the world go round. Why is Krishna dancing? What does he say? Who is the Guru of Krishna? Yes, not Sandipani Muni. <laughs> in Mathura, yes, and there he had to go from there and go to Dwarka and become a pundit and speak Bhagavad Gita and Upanishads and all these things. That's not what he does in Vrindavan when he's himself. Swayam Bhagavan means God when he wants to be himself, when he relaxes. So that is Krishna in Vrindavan. And there, what is he doing? He's dancing. And what does he say? Through the pen of Krishna's Kabiraj Goswami, I am Purna Brahma the Supreme Brahman. People worship me as such. But the fact of the matter is, is I'm just dancing under the instruction of, of Radha. Ami Shishya, to me Guru. I'm the disciple, you're the Guru. And by your, your uh, movements means you're moving in such a way and I'm like dancing after you. You're very graceful and moving and I'm <coughs> chasing after you. That is my dancing. I'm playing my flute only to attract her. So she makes the world go round. In terms of sacrifice, Swaha being sacrificed, she is the, the supreme example of sacrifice. Supreme example of sacrifice. And in, interestingly enough, she pushes herself forward, isn't it? She pushes herself forward to serve Krishna. As we said earlier, in this world it looks like if you push yourself forward, you'll get somewhere. But actually you go backwards. But Radharani, on the other side, in the world of sacrifice, she pushes herself forward. But why does she do that? to serve Krishna, because she knows in a given instance, only I can satisfy him, only I can please him in this instance, therefore I push myself forward. So the whole ego of that, you see, even when on its face it's enjoyment in pushing myself first, the ego behind that is service. This is again the nature of reality, it appears to be one thing, but it's something else. In the material world it appears to be one thing, but it's something else. In the spiritual world where it is that which it doesn't appear to be in the material world, where the whole thing is moving on sacrifice, when it gets to the fullest measure of sacrifice and surrender, it takes on an appearance that's just the antithesis of that. Even Radharani is chastising Krishna and avoiding Krishna, trying to. But, oh, he's getting such pleasure from that. So much <coughs> happiness he derives from that. Her anger at him, for example, her jealousy. We think of jealousy as a bad thing, but actually it's quite... In love, it's charming. If your lover is a little jealous, so then you're very charmed by that. Krishna is very charmed by her jealous love. So, Swaha is, as I say, as Brahma said, what makes the world go round, if it is his Shakti. And now, if, for, if it is the great daughter of the sun, yes, Jamuna in a general sense, but what words does he use here? He says, Brihad Bhanava, Brihad Bhanava Yasakrid, Brihad Bhanava. It's not found in any Sanskrit dictionaries, modern or ancient. This is a very interesting term. Brihad Bhanava. Overtly it means, as I say, great daughter of the sun. But Bhanava also, Bhanu means light. So, another name for Radha is Vrishabhanu. 
Nandini, Vashabhanabi Devi. Her father's name is Vishabhanu. Vishabhanu. Vishabhanu means bull. It means great. Bhanu means light. So it is the great light. Vishabhanu, that great light. What is the greatest light? That is Brahman. The supreme Brahman, the greatest light. Vishabhanu. Vishabhanu. Light is Brahman. Vish is bull. So it also means the greatest uh, dharma is light. Ignorance is sin is darkness. So the greatest dharma, that is prema dharma of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And the prema dharma of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that is all about Radha's love for Krishna. Radha is, uh, her name is based on the fact that she was born on the constellation presided over by Radha. And she's born on the day, one year after Krishna's birth, that is the most auspicious day in his astrological chart. On that day she appears. Radha, and Radha means, implies worship, as you know, Anayoraditonunam, she's mentioned like this in Bhagavatam, the greatest worshiper. So the greatest worship means sacrifice. From selflessness we come to worship, which is a calculated form of sacrifice. And if we go deeply in that, we go from self-sacrifice to self-forgetfulness, where there's no sense you're giving the greatest sacrifice. And everyone will say as such, but you'll think you're giving nothing. You're doing nothing. It's only an act of love. In other words, self-sacrifice is worship, but self-forgetfulness is the pitch of, of love. It reaches such a point. So this is the idea of Radha's love for Krishna. So she is the full sense of Swaha, Later, Brahma will say also further about this swaha, that what? That it is that which Brahman takes shelter of. So Krishna is taking shelter of her love. It also means, who does Krishna take shelter of? We say he takes shelter of Radha, but that it means in a general sense, he takes shelter of his devotees. Krishna is the shelter of everyone, but he takes shelter of his devotees. He takes shelter in their love. He gets his solace in their love. So Saha means Guru also then, because the Guru is representing, in a general sense, representing Krishna. In a specific sense, of course, representing a particular sentiment of love for Krishna. The Ashraya Lambana Vibhav, not the Vishaya Lambana Vibhav. Visha means the object of love, that is Krishna. The shelter of that love means Radha, Sridham, Mother Jashoda, these persons in different sentiments who are reservoirs of that love, embody that love. So our ideal is with Krishna in a general sense. We represent Krishna. But as it, our understanding develops through the chanting of this mantra and paying attention, contemplating its meaning, then we grow in our understanding. Swaha is the Guru. And the Guru is not as much directly Krishna as directly this uh, embodiment of a particular kind of love of Krishna. Therefore, yasya prasadat bhagavat prasadat yasya prasadat By getting that kind of love, you get Krishna. See, our goal is to get love of Krishna, not Krishna. We want Krishna, but you get him by getting love of Krishna. Then you get Krishna. So our ideal and more is to get love of Krishna. So the Guru represents a particular kind of love of Krishna. By getting that only, 
we get Krishna. And Sakshadharitena Samastha Shastra. Yuktastata Bhavyat Evat Sadvi Kintu Pravori Apriya Evatasya Negorasi Charanaravinda. Both things are mentioned there. He's Krishna, Sakshadharitena. But Kintu Pravori Apriya Evatasya. You want to look deeper? He's dear to Krishna. That means he represents the Ashraya Lambana Vibhav. This aspect of the equation of mutual exchange that we call rasa between Krishna and his devotees. So under his guidance we should give the mantra. Under his guidance we should get some explanation of the mantra and learn to chant this mantra in just a very general sense. I give myself in sacrifice, in self-sacrifice. This is the general sense. So this is much about what Gopal Tapani Purva consists of many verses with this type of explanation packed into them needing to be unpacked by these kind of discussions. Any question? That's why they record it. <laughs> I have to listen to it too. <laughs> There's a lot of information. These are the ideas. We should <coughs> at least come away from this thinking, oh, such a what I've been given, you see. Everybody approaches Guru for so many things. They want this from him, they want that from him. Can he help me with this? Can you help me with that? Can you straighten out my life, make it work? And we want so many we want so many things, that's the problem. The Guru giving us something to do away with all wants, that is the solution to all their problems. <laughs> and this mantra is full of such power to help us in that regard. Such power. So easy comparatively. So we should understand what is the gift of the Guru. Yes. Have some realization of it? Yes. That would be helpful, surely. So, but yet, it seems like there are people who have given mantras who didn't have realization or didn't appear to, and the mantra still seemed to have power. Right. Yet, the practice, the person who got it was chanting it. Yeah. Because most mantras, it requires that they be activated in order for them to have potency. So there has to be a person that can activate the mantra in order to make its potency available. That is the guru. Therefore, necessity for the transmission from the guru to the disciple. However, Krishna mantra, which all Krishna mantras means they represent Krishna, He's fully independent. So he, he doesn't need to be activated. This is the fact. Just like we say Krishna Nam. Hare Krishna Mantra or Krishna... It means that's a Nam Mantra, so it's different than this. But Krishna Nam is non-different from Krishna, independent of Diksha. You chant the Krishna Nam, you can get benefit. So it's always active. It doesn't need to be activated. So the Krishna Mantra corresponding Kam Gayatri, which goes with that mantra, for example, that we chant. These mantras are also just really, as we've seen here to some extent, are really just consisting of Krishna Nam. So Jiva Goswami says, well, so what's the difference then? Well, it's a formula. There are certain words packed in there, and it's made in a certain formula. As I say, these are in the dative case. It's a dhyan, but it's a bhakti dhyan. It's a for Krishna, for Gubinda, for Gopijana Balabhaya. Let me give myself... So it's a certain formula, but yes, it only really consists of Krishna Nam. So he, he admits, he, say, he makes the argument himself, what is the need of Diksha for the mantra? 
if the mantra only consists of Krishna Nam. He makes the argument himself, and he says, actually, it's, yeah, it is independent also. But Bhagavan has shown that this is the way it's been given. He's created this system, so we should get it through his system. So we should receive it from a guru. Now, in the succession, so if we receive it from a guru who knows more about it, who's more acquainted with it, that will be an advantage to us, no doubt. If we apply ourselves. We can be initiated by a very qualified guru and not apply ourselves, And our position will not be as good as someone who applies himself who's initiated by a less realized guru. Some standard, some level of acquaintance, obviously, should be there. But again, it's already activated, so someone will get some benefit. And also, for the most part, I believe that people who receive the mantra, even if they receive from a less qualified person, they're making some benefit. Then they're also affiliated with other devotees. They're in touch with Siksha gurus, either the Shastra gurus who've written the Shastra and Siksha gurus. So, in a sense, the initiation, and the, and the low end idea of the initiation, is you're actually getting admittance into the academy. And once you're in the academy, there are many other benefits there for you <laughs> that you can take advantage of. You can go to the library, you know, you can look up things, you know, and there are other teachers that you can consult in, in different departments and so forth. You can change courses or, or, or whatever once you're in the academy. So it's to get in the academy. That's a, so in the minimal sense, the guru lets us in the academy. He's in the academy, so he lets us in the academy. In the optimal, highest sense, he's got a PhD and, and he knows the subject theoretically very well and experientially very well. And Therefore, you have examples of a very qualified guru and a very qualified disciple and initiation has a very extraordinary effect. We find these examples in Krishna in Gorlila. Initiating guru is, is, is a, a parshat of Mahaprabhu, an eternal associate of Mahaprabhu, and so is the disciple. <laughs> Practically, he's getting initiated immediately. He's getting static symptoms and bhav and, and so forth. So that serves to tell us that if the chemistry is all in place, everything's right, then such power is there. But it doesn't happen in every instance. Just like so many things I mentioned in Bhaktivedanta Samhita, just if you do this, this will happen to you. You won't see the Rati Yatra, and you wonder why it doesn't happen. Rupa Goswami says, well, it doesn't happen all the time, but I've cited examples here to show that it does happen sometimes, so it means the power is there in such things, if everything else is in place. And such power is there. So with the mantra, the power is there, but it depends, everything else has to be in place, or to whatever extent it is, there will be results. Yes? So some people say that along with applying yourself, if you haven't gotten the mantra, as far as we can tell, from someone who realizes it, some level of realization, then it is advantageous, or if you want to progress more and more, that it is necessary or advantageous to find and submit to someone who has realization of the mantra or realization of their own identity or what's your comment on that? Well, um, I think that's good advice in many respects. But when that advice is given by someone who's merely only saying my guru is better than yours and therefore you should leave this sect and come to this sect, then it's apparent to me that at least that Disciple doesn't have much realization of what that's really all about because this is not about changing sects and it's not about changing gurus. It's not what this is about. It's about going back to Godhead. And I'll tell you frankly, because a lot of people who have initiated people are my god brothers, and I know all those people. 
and some of them don't aren't in um, at the present moment aren't uh, held in high esteem. Some of them, and there may be objective reasons for that also. But I know those people. What they many of them did and gave and sacrificed and and gained also. And by circumstance, whatever it may be, they may be in a position at this time where they can't be fully taken advantage of, and they are not fully taking advantage of what's been given to them. But that's not the whole picture. You don't just come in, you know, now at 19-whatever, 80 or 90 or 2,000. That's not the whole picture of what's involved. And so people, devotees got initiated sometimes by some of my godbrothers like that, but they also learned much. They benefited much. They gained much. This is about, it's all about, in a very basic sense, gratitude. So whatever extent anyone has helped us on the path, that has to be underscored. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter. This is the practical experience of everybody. The guy that you met in the bar who was a drunk devotee who told you about Krishna in his stupor, you know, that, that made you go to the temple is worshipable by you forever, even in his drunken condition, even if he remains a drunk. You always will, if you are a devotee, really, and taking advantage of that, you will hold him and you have a special place for him in your heart. And you will pray for his advancement so that he can resume the position of being your teacher. That's a natural sentiment of one who's applying themselves. Now, if you're applying yourself and something like that happens, your teacher goes away and then you become angry and so forth, you're not applying yourself that well. I mean, I'm not sympathetic. I understand those situations are awkward and so forth. But we're going after something very high. And if Christian hurdles a thunderbolt at us, you know, we can't say, hey, you know, I wanted a sunny day. What's going on? It, that's his choice. That's a, there's a lot of factors involved in that. What was our past life? What we did? Why we got here? What, you know, how we got connected with people in the realm of karma, in the realm of bhakti, all these things. It's a huge, huge picture. We can't just look at one frame and a film of the whole picture and try to make, the, make a movie out of that. We have to step back. We have to see the whole picture. So while that's good advice, obviously, you know, if you could be in touch with someone who's very highly realized, it's, why not? Of course, that's what you want. That's we want those. That's what we teach everywhere. Mahaprabhu's own associates were crying. Narottam Das is crying. Oh, Rupa and Raghunath are gone, and uh, Sarup Damodar is gone. Why can't I have good association anymore? And he's the best association you could get. A person like Narottam Thakur, and he's praying like that. So who we think we shouldn't pray like that, that we should have such good company, such association, or think that it's not available. We should want that good company. But one of the ways in which we'll determine how good that company is, is how they deal with these kind of issues, in my estimation. If the good company is just criticizing everybody else, then, I mean, the best company has no one to criticize except his own self. That is the sentiment, uh, the feeling, the realization, the insight of the superlative devotee. So, for myself, for example, my Siksha Guru, after my, my Guru Maharaj left, is Srila Sridhar Maharaj, and I found that in him, no tendency to criticize anyone. That's a very extraordinary quality, even while being so strongly criticized for no good reason. <laughs> no tendency to criticize at all. I mean, constructive criticism is there, and we may criticize based on information we receive also to be constructive, but and that's just one of, one of course of the qualities we should we should look for.
But otherwise, in principle, it, it's good advice. But unfortunately, it's become a politicized affair, and it, it's rather than it being a harmonizing type of instruction and a strengthening one, it, it's one that causes dissension and, and, and uh, more sectarianism. Even just again on the realm of the guru, it looks like we're moving into a stage where we need to understand how do you relate to a shiksha guru and a diksha guru, not even on this level of whether you get a self-realized soul or not, but you see people who, they do have gratitude for their diksha guru, they do have the proper non-critical attitude, but they're starting to find inspiration from someone else, even just within, in, it's within this God even I see this. They find inspiration from another person, but they get the kind of a feeling of maybe I'm not being, I'm being unchaste to this other one. Their guru should tell them there's no question of being unchaste. We should be chaste to Krishna consciousness. Disciples are not the property of anybody. They're the property of Krishna. They're not the property of the guru. The guru is, is only bringing them to Krishna. That's all this is about, to help to bring people to Krishna. It's not about making sure you've got your potties for the rest of your life. It's not about that at all, or any shade of that. So if, you know, if someone has a shade of that, that's unfortunate then in the capacity of a teacher. And we have to distance ourselves a little bit from that. But that person is sincere. They, if by your sincerity, they'll see. If you're progressing in Krishna consciousness, who could complain with that? that? That's all everybody wants. That's what we're in this for. And there's, there's no other reason for doing this kind of service of accepting disciples unless you feel that you can, you can help people. It's it's only about giving. It's it's not about collecting followers at all. You know, the Bhakti Sarasthi Thakur gave a famous talk, more humble than a blade of grass, when he had a vision that all of his disciples were his teachers, engaging them. So these are really pretty mundane um, conceptions. Chastity to my guru, and we should be the guru means representing Krishna consciousness. We should be chased to Krishna consciousness. If by circumstance we are initiated here, and over time we find inspiration over here, hmm, should take that inspiration, and over here, the first guru should bless that, the second guru, so to see how qualified he is, bless the first one, glorify the first one. It's all happy family-like. This is how it should go on. And Prabhupada set an example in that regard. You know that there was one disciple of Prabhupada's who had come to the mission of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu through, I forget how who, but one of Prabhupada's godbrothers who was preaching in India. I forget who it was. And that guru was his initial inspiration and so forth. But then, get this, you know, the big movement of Prabhupada came. Everything's happening over there. You know, They've got the big kirtans and selling books and there's a lot of, movement, everything's going on there. And it, there was a lot, a lot going on there, spiritually also. And so that, that devotee, who's a fellow from India, he got attracted to Prabhupada's movement based on all that movement that was going on. So he went there and got initiated by Prabhupada, which was obviously the thing to do. And, but after time, his attraction for his, the initial guru who had inspired him and brought him to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission showed up, resurfaced as something more substantial than his inspiration from Prabhupada, which was largely based on everything that was going on around Prabhupada. So anyway, he approached Prabhupada, and even in Prabhupada's responses there in the letter, and he said, you know, I was initially came through this, and I got initiated, but I find in my faith is with so-and-so. And Prabhupada said, and that's very good, and he released him, gave his blessings, and said, and you go and stay with him.
he even released him to say, to go and you, you be his disciple. But it, in a more, what would be better overall in the Gaudiya Sampradaya is if they say, oh, Adikshya's honor, that took place. Now go here and he's your Siksha Guru. And it's possible the Siksha Guru may have a more prominent influence in our life than the Diksha Guru. Or the Diksha Guru may have a more prominent influence than the Siksha Guru. They're equal manifestations of the Absolute. Their function is somewhat different. But it's not entirely different because the Diksha Guru is obviously also a Siksha Guru. Otherwise, why he took Diksha from him? You didn't get any Siksha from him. And after he gives a Diksha, he gives Siksha about the mantra and so many things and so forth. So... You accept? Oneness. I, I accept all those things that you're saying. I, I tend to think that sort of way. How then do you understand that story, which is the most incident they use at the Prabhupada that a lot of people look at as this is what chastity means, where I think Prabhupada was sick and in the early days, and he wa- and someone said, well, Prabhupada, we get one of your god brothers to come, you know, and I don't, look, I don't know the details, but help the movement or help us out, train, guide us. And Prabhupada's answer was, my guru saved me, or something along those lines, which I never really made that connection that people make, but they, it, it was as if they felt he was saying, how yeah, well, I think that's think a, of someone else besides me. How do you understand you know, Well, I think that uh, yeah, it has been taken like that. And he could have even meant that. At a time, too. At that time. He could have felt that he expressed a certain sentiment at that time. But I think that all of these things have to be taken in the context of the philosophy of Gaudiya Vaishnavism and applied appropriately. It's possible that Prabhupada felt like that at that moment. That's what he meant. It's possible he meant something entirely different. So you're just that's just you're just making whoever's doing that makes a conjecture of what he really meant, and they've turned it and they've made a whole doctrine out of it. But unfortunately, the doctrine that they've turned out of that is contradictory to the philosophy stated in his own books and by him on numerous occasions, and by his own example. Because Prabhupada himself also said, just for example, what? When Atutananda Maharaj was in India, feeling deficient for lack of association, Prabhupada said, if you need association of a Sikshu Guru, go to my godbrother, Bhidhar Sridhar Maharaj, Navadweep. What to speak of how he can help you, I accept him as my Siksha Guru. And of course, everybody knows that Chutananda went and lived there for quite some time with Sridhar Maharaj. And this was in the living presence of Prabhupada. Prabhupada is saying two things. He's my Siksha Guru. Prabhupada told Hansaduda, everything I learned, I learned from Sridhar Maharaj. As far as the theory of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, that's a pretty interesting statement. Prabhupada lived with Sridhar Maharaj for six years. And I should say Sridhar Maharaj lived with Prabhupada for six years in Prabhupada's house. And Sita Kanta Banerjee Lane, Prabhupada had two flats and he gave one to Sridhar Maharaj after the mission broke up. And they were talking philosophy. Sridhar Maharaj was a sannyasi, Prabhupada was a householder at the time. Sridhar Maharaj lived with Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur. Prabhupada lived outside of the mission. So many things he learned theoretically from Sridhar Maharaj. Sridhar Maharaj was like a Siksha Guru for him. Now, again, to take this further, of course, there's different kind of Siksha Gurus. I may say, yes, you know, so-and-so is my Siksha Guru in a general sense. He was senior to me in the mission. I learned things from him. That's a general sense. Then we may say it in a specific sense. He's my Siksha Guru. He's the bottom line for me. Prabhupada didn't accept Sridhar Maharaj like that. 
Prabhupada was independent. He was a disciple of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Siddharmarsh was his, his godbrother. He revered him. He learned many things from him and he revered his knowledge and his spiritual standing and so forth. But he went, you know, <coughs> and did what he wanted. He even criticized Siddharmarsh a couple of times. Siddharmarsh laughed when he read that. He said, oh, Swami Marsh has not even spared me in his criticisms. So, Prabhupada was independent, and, and we like to stress that side sometimes, his disciples, and that's understandable. And obviously, he didn't put Sri Dharma's picture on every altar and teach us all, this is my Siksha Guru, and so on and so forth. So, in a general sense, he accepted him as a Siksha Guru. The principle is there, and he taught his disciple to go to him. So, you have to look at all those things. You have to look at the whole picture, yes. Taking it in a historical context, and just like a, a, a child, a parent raising a child, initially that uh, there's a, a certain amount of nurturing that must go on in the early years that it's very important that, that the, the focus of that nurturing is the primary parent and then after the child is grown up a little bit then he can take advantage of the nurturing also from the uncles and different family members and other teachers and the father and the mother will welcome that oh uh, my son is going to he has a nice mentor here that's natural but the father will welcome that too too embellish what the parents have already given. So, in in the context of historical, chronological context of Prabhupada's movement, it's very natural that Prabhupada would, would very understandably be very protective of his ch children and protect them from possible so-called outside influence, you know, and sometimes give the sanction for that. But that's understandable in, in, the, in that analogy of the parents. And then and you know, just as Prabhupada said, yes, after there's philosophical questions, after I leave, go to Sri Ramarsh. So that, you know, that's a very powerful statement there. Um, Prabhupada once told Dr. Kapoor that Dr. Kapoor respectfully complained to him that the way you're teaching your disciples, they won't listen to anybody else. Dr. Kapoor was the godbrother of Prabhupada, and obviously he knew more than most of Prabhupada's disciples, and he, he was in Vrindavan, and Prabhupada had interacted with him and he'd written some articles for BTG and so forth and he couldn't understand this guy doesn't know what to, you know how to tie his dhoti practically you know he went and I'm trying to give him some advice and he's looking at me like I'm in Maya you know because so, <laughs> I'm not a Prabhupada follower or whatever you know so he complained to Prabhupada and he said well you know in the future I'm a little concerned what will happen because they won't listen the way you're teaching them they won't listen to anybody else and Prabhupada said no it's not like that he said but when you plant a tree and a seed, it's the seed of a tree, then you put a fence around it to protect it. Because it's, if it grows properly, then of its own accord it will go over the fence, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. naturally. Mm -hmm. And your example is nice too, of the uh, parent and the uh, elders like Krishna when he was a child, then of course he was confiding in Nanda Maharaj and, and so on. But as his nature started to manifest, in the Prakat Leela of being a cowherder, his dharma. Then he went to discuss that growth with Upananda Sunanda, his, his uncles. This was disconcerting to Nanda Maharaj. I see my son, he's over there talking, and every time I come, they, they're quiet. Hmm? What's going on? He's thinking like this. And so Nanda Maharaj wanted to keep him as his son, but that sentiment's there, but of course he couldn't resist. He's growing up, he's going to be a cow herder, he's going to take the cows himself, it means he'll be gone all day in the forest. So there was some, some little 
internal struggle on his part when he realized what was going on and Krishna was consulting with his uncles and they said, oh, he wants to be a cowherder. He said, oh, I guess I have to let him do that now. And so with, in conjunction with his uncles, he was getting also some more insight and, uh, and growth uh, brought him in touch with them as, as mentors of sorts and he could say things to them that he couldn't say to, his, to Nanda Maharaj. And so sometimes Diksha Guru is like that. You can say things to him that you couldn't say to your Diksha Guru. And like an uncle, you can sit back and talk a little more casually. Then let's say in a classic Indian society, you can't say anything to your father. You know, it's like <laughs> he says what you will do. And taking that analogy in, in, in another light, just like at the same time, we we I think it's important that we're conscientious about say the desires or the kind of the vision and the mission of the father. You know that that you know that Prabhupada had certain very specific things that he wanted to see accomplished. So that whomever we may, our Krishna consciousness is embellished by in terms of Shiksha Guru and Advanced Association, that we keep chased in a greater sense to the what is the mission and the desires of the Thangacharya, and, and, and that, that those two are, are, are harmonious tracks. I think that's where it all becomes kind of a synthesized without any kind of discordant you know, feelings. One of the things that he wanted, which is worth underscoring, I think too is is the kind of intersect uh, communication because sometimes it's portrayed as being just the opposite that he didn't want any interaction with any other sect. If you actually study the historical record of Prabhupada's writing, it's very clear that he wanted intersect type of uh, association amongst devotees. I mean, he wanted even his godbrothers to be to initiate in his mission, and initially he wanted to build a house in. At the Yoga Pit, where Bhakti Vilas Tirtamaraj was in charge for his Western students to stay there. He didn't even have the idea of getting an independent piece of property, the Mayapur property, for his Western students. He wanted his Western students to be able to come to India and to Mahaprabhu's land of Nadia. So he approached Tirtamaraj and he said, I'll pay for it, you know, if I can have a building for my Western students there. Now that didn't work out, and Tirtamaraj didn't respond in the way Prabhupada wanted. And Prabhupada reacted to that over time and said things. And so, but a lot of the things that he said that lead one to believe that he wanted the kind of closed doors sect, everybody's inside it, and we'll all work harmoniously in here and outside of it, forget about everything. That emphasis is really based on reactionary statements of Prabhupada. It doesn't reveal the full picture of what he really wanted. He wanted to have a healthy, happy interaction between himself, for example, and his godbrothers who were initiating in different missions where his disciples' relationship with him would be honored, their disciples' relationship with them would be honored, there would be sectarianism in a healthy sense in that way where the particulars of that person, that guru and his personality could be manifest in sweetness that made him different from, from the other guru, but then together to preach Mahaprabhu's mission in, in the United Way, something like that. Yes? Another subject... Um if you could speak on this, this is, uh, you spoke about uh, the tendency, about desire and ambition, and the tendency to be very busy in the world, and um, the, at the same time, kind of going counter to the cultivation of deeper Christian consciousness. And you know, it's a, it's a juncture that I find myself at all the time. <laughs> uh, 
those who know me well. <laughs> um, and you know, it's a, it's a great uh, causes you to struggle, internal conflict, you know, how to balance those two, especially sometimes when the the ambition is in relation to kind of a desire for a certain type of manifestation of serving in a certain way, which may be mixed with material desire, what is mixed with material desire, but it's still that core desire to please Prabhupada in a certain way. So um, maybe you could speak about that. In other words, something, I find myself a lot of times going, the, the, the schedule and the pressures of the world and the things that are, I'm wanting to accomplish um, overshadow the setting aside the sacred time for really concentrated sadhana. Of course, I made plans to go to India this year for three weeks in January, so I can just have that at that time by myself. But um, it's a conflict, it's a struggle, it's a, something that's ongoing. So, uh, you spoke about, and this was in, you spoke about it afterward, you spoke about sacrifice and the tendency to, um, you know, the beyond logic of giving. And I was thinking that, okay, well, if I really focus on the, you know, the priority is, you know, very, the practice of Krishna consciousness, the sadhana, the, the meditation and chanting, which I do, but I don't, it, it oftentimes gets unfurled by the busyness and the schedule of the world. But if I would have enough faith that, of course, everything would take care of itself, which I always, you know, when I do that, I see if it does. But anyway, if you could perhaps speak on that <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that in good company, you can become more convinced that you can accomplish more in, in less time by sacrificing and spending time on spiritual practice. You'll get more insight from that. You'll be happier. You'll be less in need of, of doing things in order to become happy or have, feel a sense of accomplishment. So it's important to uh, organize your life in such a way that there's time spent on that regularly on a daily, daily basis. And um, if you have a tendency to want to accomplish something in a worldly sense and within that for Krishna consciousness, and that requires a lot of busy time and so forth, and you're in a difficult situation. But I think that you have to embrace kind of the wisdom, the, the, the invisible truth that by sacrificing time from what you think you need to do in order to accomplish what you want to accomplish and using that time for making a spiritual foundation of practice in your life that mystically you'll be able to accomplish more than if you put down the beads and or you know you just do your job while you know driving at midnight or something like that. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> So, uh, try it, you know. <laughs> when are you going to Vrindavan? Going in uh, January. We're actually going to Puri for seven days. Mayapur. Yeah, well, you go there for a few months and then you won't have the opportunity to be busy about it. I mean, you've, you already know it. Yeah. You know it. You know what I'm saying and you're yeah, saying yeah, it yourself. Yeah, so, I, I just, there's not... Uh, it's just a reiteration. I just wanted to... I think, the, yeah, the answer is that what you sense inside is, is, is true. You have to do that. You have to put that time aside. I think the and, and, you know, one of the things, excuse me, but one of the things that Prabhupada emphasized, too, was that purity is, was the force. So if you want force, 
to do something in the world for Krishna consciousness, and, and it has to be there has to be a pure uh, background to that. And there's nothing that will replace the, uh, the the time spent in spiritual practice in terms of purifying your your heart, your motives, and and so on. You, you may find it's the very thing that's missing in the equation for for your success formula. Mm. Hmm. three times a day, it means you know, your day has to be a little meditative. You have to be thinking of what you're doing. What you're really doing in life, what you really are, you have to think, what I am is a sadhaka. That's what I am. That's how you have to live your life. You're not a siddha, neither are you a buddha, jeev, just a conditioned soul. You're a sadhaka. You're somewhere in between. This is what you're really doing with your life. And there are other things that you do also that, in order to be a sadhaka on the level that you're on, you have to. If you're a grihasti, you have to work and you have to take care of children and whatnot. You have to have livelihood. There, there are many things that that you have to do. But but that's all just extra. But what you're really about, first and foremost, is is you're a sadhaka. You have to think like that, and then you have to adjust your life accordingly. So three times a day. Dawn, noon, dusk. The times are important too. It's all a meditation. You're changing. Uh, spent the morning, now I'm going into the day. So let me initiate, in a sense, the, the day, like this, with mantra dhyan. In the middle of the day, how did I, have I spent the half of the day? What extent have I actually applied myself as, as sadhaka, even in the context of being, you know, needing to be a busy person in the world for the sake of my livelihood and so forth. Go into the second part of the day and reflect back on that into the evening. It's just like that. It's, it's meant to help your whole day be meditative. Now, obviously, the, the culture we live in doesn't really lend to that. And it's, it's nice if you can live in a community and uh, you have your livelihood there amongst devotees and, and so on. That can be helpful, certainly. But um, a lot of us don't. And... The world is powerful and very consuming. So then in instances like that, we have to try our best, but we have to, we have to really try to keep good association, invite sadhus to our home, go to them, get their company. That uh, kind of association is most, um, most valuable. Help us remember what, what's important in life. At the same time that we remember what's important in life, 
our spiritual practice, we, we also have to understand where we are truthfully and honestly. And we have to come to live with ourselves. You know, we might have joined thinking we would go back to God in a few years and we renounced our families and everything, but now we find we have families, we have children of our own, and we're visiting our parents too, <laughs> who we you know renounced years ago. <laughs> and so things, uh, all these desires don't go away real quickly. It takes, takes time. And what we're after is very, very lofty ideal. Understanding that theoretically more and more will be very helpful to us. And it will also help us to really honestly locate ourselves on the map. So, you know, you want to go here, and the big sign is, and now you are here. And so you have to emphasize as much, now I'm here, as here's where you want to go. Because by emphasizing I am here and where I really am and applying oneself accordingly is the means to go there. If you don't know where you are on it, then it's that much more difficult to apply yourself in a, in a way that will call your progress. So you have to kind of see where you are and accept it and not be like, become whatever, psychologically dysfunctional over, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing enough spiritual practice. Uh, and then not give enough attention to your livelihood or your, your family. See, all those things can also help you in Krishna consciousness. That's part of the teaching. If you understand where you are and you have desires that are involving you in a certain way, you can learn from those desires and that, and that involvement. You can learn from, you know, the worst thing on, you know, the Radha party was to be, get married, you know. Worst thing that could happen to you, you know, would be to get married. But it was really the best thing for most people, and, and a lot of them got married thinking it was the worst thing that happened to them, you know. And they ended up having a horrible marriage and didn't learn anything from that either, either from their brahmacharya life or from their married life. And the fact of the matter is that married life is a huge opportunity to learn how to sacrifice. I mean, it's, it's huge to live with somebody else. That you know, it's just like you know, whoa. Of course, we do that in the ashram, too, living with other brahmacharis and so forth, but it's not the same as married life, as you know. I was married once, too, so I, I know about these things, practically. <laughs> so, everything's an opportunity, really. There are really no problems, uh, in one sense, but um, just, just different service opportunities that come our way. And if we can identify them as such, we can grow from them. That way we can have a very organic spiritual practice. It's not like my spiritual practice is over here, you know, and then my life is over here, and the two are totally divorced from one another. This is Maya, this is Krishna. We need to integrate a little bit more. Krishna consciousness is a very integrated affair. It's in the fabric of, of, of everything. So take your worldly responsibilities and in life in that regard is an opportunity for progress also. Try to see it like that, how it can be, and that will help you then when you do sit and chant. So, we talk for a while. Okay, so then we'll get together this evening too? Yeah, Chan Gayatri, yes. Chan right. Good idea. Okay. Sigupal Tapani Ki Jai.